Like, okay, let's, let's get together and talk about it. That was pretty cool. So obviously you're going to get together at some point. When should we get together? Uh, well, the church has been getting together on Saturday. Maybe we'll get together on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose from the beginning. Oh. Uh, sun, Sunday's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So the church, the Christians start meeting together on Sundays. And when they're getting together, what are they going to talk about? Well, if you just saw a guy rise from the dead... That's the thing you want to talk about. So they're talking about Jesus rising from the dead. And what does this mean? How awesome it is that Jesus rose from the dead. But after like a few weeks, they start remembering Jesus talked about a lot of other stuff that, that, are, that are important. And the Bible is full of, especially the Old Testament is full of all these. Other... <laughs> Linda wants you to announce that there's youth group tonight, but she doesn't want you to announce that until the end. Okay. Linda does not <laughs> want me to announce until the end the fact that there's youth group tonight. Youth group tonight, Super Bowl party in the, in the youth room. At what time? Not now, but later I'll tell you the time, which is youth group tonight, see Linda. All right. Uh, so, so, the, the, so the season, the, 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 as the Christians are getting together, they start realizing we want to be able to talk about the Bible in, a, in an organized way so we can teach our children the faith. And so how are you going to break down the scriptures? Well, we, we ultimately, the church arrived at what we would call today the lectionary, which is nothing other than an organized way of working through the Bible in some kind of a systematized way so that we hear the full teachings of Jesus over the course of a year so that the people aren't left up to the whims of the pastor because, you know, it's, if, you know, some pastors, if they think, well, my people have a real problem with gossip. So we're going to have a 15-week session on gossip. And you're like... You're going to sick of coming to church. And Jesus actually talked about plenty of other things, too, that you might be going through. If we only talk about suffering and sickness, that's important, too. We all face that. But then we're never talking about some of these other things we might be struggling with. So the, going through the lectionary gives us an opportunity to cover the full wisdom and counsel of God in an organized way over the course of the year. And the main pillars of that are the birth of Jesus at Christmas and the resurrection of Jesus at Easter. And those are, those are kind of set in, in, the, in the calendar, and they dictate where the other seasons fall. So Advent leading up to the season of Christmas, and that start, that's the first season of the church year. After Christmas, Epiphany, as Jesus is then manifest or revealed uh, to be the Savior. So that's really what the word Epiphany means, is revealed, manifest. So Transfiguration being the high point of the Epiphany season, as Jesus is manifesting his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. So that makes sense. He's been doing a lot of miracles in the season of Epiphany. And then now we turn to the season of Lent, which is a preparatory season for Easter. Uh, just in the same way, you don't need chemo unless you know you have cancer. I don't need, I don't need Jesus unless I know I have sin. So the 40-day se season of Lent is a reflection upon my, my need for a Savior. And we, so we focus on the cross uh, and, our, and our need for the cross. It's 40 days. Um, not counting Sundays, so 47 approximately days in the season of Lent. And that's kind of coming after the Jesus wandering or Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness for, for 40 days uh, as he fasted. That's where that number 40 comes from. The church has, I mean, the Christian, Christianity randomly set that number. So we're just going to do it. Through, there's a biblical connection to that 40. So we're going to spend 40 days in the season preparing ourselves for Easter. Yeah. Why aren't the Sundays counted? So, no, very good. So typically, so that the, on Easter Sunday, and the, 
this is a funny little thing. Like if, if usually when people give something up for Lent, they're trying to like break a bad habit. No, no, this isn't related to that. But so if someone says, I'm going to give up booze for 40 days or something or chocolate or something. Um, if you're going to break a habit, you want to actually stick with it. Um, but but so that doesn't work if you're trying to match that to Lenten because actually Sundays are a, a celebration, a, a feast, because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. So we're not going to fast while the bridegroom is near. That's the idea. So the, but, but we do still, as I mentioned in the Alleluia paragraph at the end of service, we do still refrain from Alleluias in the season of Lent. We, so we strip the, we don't sing the, we don't sing the same hymns that talk about, that use the, the, the phrase Alleluia. Um, but then also personal devotional habits are, are continued during that season. But yeah, so Sundays, for some reason, aren't, aren't counted in that. And so it gets Easter, and then after Easter is seven-week season, and then, and then Pentecost. During the season of Lent, as we're reflecting upon our need for a Savior, one of the ways that the church has historically done this is we, we hear the, the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6, which is the appointed gospel reading for Ash Wednesday, when Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the Pharisees who want to pray on the street corner for everybody to see. When you give, don't make a big scene about it, but don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And when you fast, don't make a big deal about it, trying to, make, trying to like gain a, a approval in everybody else's eyes. You'd be doing it for you. Or you'd be doing it for your own glory. Uh, so, but he says when you fast, not if you fast. So the, the church, he didn't say how long or what to do, or he didn't give us any, any kind of guidance on that. But we do see a practice of fasting. And everybody fasts, like when you sleep. That's why in the first meal that you eat is always breaking the fast, right? Um, so fasting is simply not doing, not eating, or not doing something for an extended period of time. So commonly, we would, so a, 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 a particular fast could be um, like the, the Catholics famously don't eat uh, meat on Fridays. So they're giving up, they're giving up steak on Fridays which is like such a first world problem. <laughs> um, but like you, you might find, if some of you have Catholic, Roman Catholic background or family or, or, or whatever, um, so it's, it's, it becomes actually sinful to eat meat on Fridays in, the, in their system. So to break your Lenten fast is to then, is to actually commit a, a sin. Wait a second, hold on. Jesus never said, he never gave us any kind of restriction on this thing. So the Lutheran approach isn't as much an, an, an itemized focus on sin, like what are my individual sins I'm trying to deal with, but rather just general sense of I am a sinner who needs saving. Uh, the problem of hunger, specifically tied to our, our bellies, um, why, do your, why does your body... Why does your body tell you that, you're, that, it, that it's hungry? You need to eat. And if you don't eat, you, you die. But that wasn't always the case, right? You, you did, in the Garden of Eden, they didn't have to eat. They enjoyed eating. There was a garden there. They could eat from anything, but they didn't have to eat because death wasn't on the table. Now, though, after the fall into sin, my hunger pangs are a reminder that if I don't eat... 
I will die. And my stomach controls me. Jesus talks about this quite a bit. Like our, our stomach ultimately uh, guides a lot of our decisions, our desire to, to fill my own belly and, 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 and prolong the filling of my own belly. That's to, to satisfy those base desires controls us. So if you think about it, like when you, if you've ever given up anything from just a personal dietary practice of like, or starting a New Year's resolution where you say, I'm not gonna do whatever, you start feeling that tug to eat dessert or to have your coffee or whatever the thing is, none of those things are sinful. And yet the tug, the sense of your inability to control yourself, that's where you see our, our sinfulness. My, the fact that my belly rules over me, or at least tries to rule over me, that my desires try to rule over me. So in the season of Lent, it's always this pushback against that desire. You don't rule over me. Um, Commonly, for the last hundreds of years, the church, the church has collectively given up watching Netflix binging on Wednesday night because Wednesday night, the church gets together for church. So we add, when you're adding an additional worship on Wednesday night, you're actually giving up whatever you were doing otherwise on Wednesday night, see? So these are all, again, I can stress this enough, it's all done within the realm of freedom. It's still helpful. It's not like making God happy. It's purely... It's purely trying to force the sinful flesh into submission. And it's not bad to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give something up for Lent and replace it with a positive thing. So you might say something like, um, during Lent, I'm going, I, normally I would go out to eat lunch on my, and, and, I, and whatever that would cost. And then I check, get on my phone and check Facebook or whatever. So maybe this year uh, during Lent, instead of doing that, I'm going to just not eat lunch. Just skip lunch completely. Bring an apple or maybe or something. Just do something different where you're taking all the money that you would have spent on lunch and then giving it to a good cause, giving it to the homeless guy that you walk past in the street every day, whatever, giving it to some purpose, and then taking the time that you would have spent doing lunch and scrolling Facebook, um, praying for your family, reading the Bible, those are good things, and it's all done in freedom. So re replacing a, a, a habit with a more helpful thing. Again, doesn't make Jesus any happier with you. He can't be any more happy with you now than he already is. He's died for your sins. Your sins are fully taken away. You're standing in, in the presence of God the day you die. But now on this side of heaven, we're just kind of looking at my sinful flesh and saying, I do some stuff that's pretty unhelpful for me and my neighbor, and that's evidence of my sin. And so during Lent, we're just focusing on highlighting that problem. Not because it merits any favor with God, but because it's actually helpful. And really, we should do these things all the time, right? Not that we have to like fast all the time. The idea is to always be aware of our sinful desires and resist them but especially in the season of Lent. So uh, that's, that's uh, Lent, and uh, I think I've covered it to death. There are any, any questions on Lent and practices, a variety of practices or interesting stories from your childhood? I've given the same spiel every year since I've taught on Lent, so by now, hopefully, you can say that we're, we're, we're at least consistent. But I... I, I I always run into people who talk about some weird things that they were taught about Lent when they were little and it was, it was sinful. Like they had a, a, a church fundraiser or a school fundraiser or something and it was a hot dog something and it happened to fall during Lent one year and you can't eat hot dogs on Friday and the fundraiser was on Friday and so now all of a sudden they had this conundrum where they're trying to raise money for their school but they, 
but it was, it's a hot dog fundraiser. So how are we going to do this? Well, they said, well, we're, we'll just, we'll, we'll rule that the, you can eat a hot dog on Fridays, this particular Friday, if you're standing in the church parking lot. <laughs> so my buddy, Craig, he, that's when actually, that was, the, that was the straw that made him become a Lutheran, actually. Because he, he, sta- he was asking the, the nun or priest or whatever, he was like, so he's holding a hot dog. So he's, if I stand here and eat the hot dog, I'm okay. But if I stand over here, it's sinful? He said, yeah. I said, why? Who said? I mean, this is this arbitrary list of sins based on this practice of giving something up for Lent that Jesus didn't demand specifically for us to do any of these things. What? We're adding all these laws? To, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, last year someone told me this, and I forgot. It's been 365. Yeah. Jay knows a ruling from the back. Which again, and that's a great thing. So to say, to say like, okay, we recognize, I mean, we could, we could do that now. We could say, okay, there is a need um, to support this, because if our congregation is predominantly fishermen or something, right? And we're like, okay, let's, during the season of Lent, because we're hurting financially in, in this sector, let's all try to like help support these guys who are going through a rough time. But it's, that would be done in Christian freedom and love. But as soon as I say you have to do it, and actually removes from me the possibility of doing it freely. Now I'm doing it to achieve a, a law, not because I actually love the person. So you actually kill it when you, when you attach a law to it. Good, good question. Good answer there. Yeah. Why is fish not meat? <laughs> yeah, fish is, as we learned from Ron Swanson, fish is a vegetable. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Anything else? <laughs> I, I can't speak to your meat question. Yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, so, uh, so jo- join us in your, in your Linton devotional practice, whatever it might be, adding in Wednesday night as your schedule allows. We also will have Wednesday mornings, uh, 11 o'clock this week, but then every Wednesday we have 11 o'clock midweek divine service in the morning, uh, just for those who can't make it to church on Sundays or people who are, who are wanting additional um, sacrament during the, during the week. Also, think about adding some kind of other devotional practice to your life. Uh, and, and if you're giving something up, you're doing it, I mean, it helps to kind of psychologically do that where you say, okay, I'm going to try to not eat dessert because my desire for sugar shouldn't control me. And, you're, and let's say you break your, you, you, you end up eating dessert half the time, that, but that you've accomplished the purpose, that is being aware of that pull acknowledging it and connecting it to that's, that's why I need a savior because my body is always trying to control me, but it's not going to control me forever. And this body is ultimately going to die. My body will go into the ground, right? So it needs to be, it needs to be um, redeemed. Pick up one of those devotions if you get a chance and, and work through that as well. All right, crucifixion. We got, oh, we got plenty of time. Good. Um,
So we left off at, at, uh, in the middle of the crucifixion, verse 34 approximately, as Jesus says, um, well, they, so they come to the place that is called the skull where they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said the first word, the first of the seven words of the cross, which we highlight in the church uh, um, always holds these seven last statements of Jesus as very important because it was hard for him to say them. And they were the last things that he says. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So note that the first word from the cross and the last word from the cross are actually addressed to Father. So there, it's this prayer of faith that he's giving from, from, from beginning to end on the cross. He's, he's dying with this undying uh, faith in in the heavenly father. But interestingly, the middle word, which isn't recorded in the gospel of Luke, the, the Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, Laba, Sabachthani, he doesn't say father, but he says, my God, my God, my God. It's a little bit, it's a step removed because of the nature of what he's saying on the cross. It's why have you forsaken me? So he goes from being this father's son to just being cast aside and rejected by the father. That's what hell ultimately is. And that's why we know Jesus is suffering hell there on the cross. We'll come back to that when we get to the darkness. Father, forgive them. Who? Forgive who? Well, the immediate context is, for they, for they know not what they do in the present tense. So you could, just on the, on the face of it, he's obviously talking about the guys who are nailing him to the cross. Like the actual people who are standing there crucifying him are the, in, the intended audience there. And yet, so why is Jesus able to even say, forgive them? So he, he's actually doing the thing on the, by dying there on the cross. He's winning the, the ability to forgive sins, right? Ultimately, sins must be paid for and they're being paid for on the cross. So him even able, being able to say, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's not contingent upon them. He's not saying, uh, forgive them because they've somehow justified this or whatever. He says, forgive them. They don't, know, they don't even know what they're doing. I'm paying for this. That is the commonality that we share with this, uh, in the recipient of this forgiveness. Jesus is speaking the same word from the Lord's Prayer, a fit me, uh, same word for forgiveness. And it's also the same thing repeated by Stephen at his stoning. Forgive them for they know not, they're blind to their own actions. And then they cast lots to divide his garments as was predicted in Psalm twenty-two eighteen, 18. Or maybe rather, as we, rather than being predicted in Psalm twenty-two eighteen, 18, it's actually the psalmist in Psalm 22 actually getting a vision of what was happening with Jesus. We talked about that before with the role of prophecy being not, that, not their fortune telling, but rather getting a, a glimpse into the future of something that's actually happening. That's why when you read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and 54, or 52, 53, it's so shockingly accurate to what Jesus did on the cross. It's because they're actually getting a picture of it. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So these rulers, remember, these are the ones who are like the, the, from, the, from the temple, who were ridiculing Jesus and ultimately responsible for him being put on the cross, they're following Jesus and scoffing because, remember the sign that Jesus is having to carry in front of the, 
that's being carried in front of the cross, I should say, and then will ultimately be nailed above the cross, as we'll find out in a couple verses. He's being paraded around town with the sign that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So everybody who looks on is saying, oh, this is the King of the Jews. And the rulers are like, no, he's not the King of the Jews. You're getting this all wrong. And so they're walking behind him, mocking him the whole way. Some king he is, if he was really the king, he'd be able to save himself. So he's no king. So they're kind of, they're kind of pushing aside any, any false understandings that this Jesus might be the king of the Jews. He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, who said that? If you are the Christ, then Satan. If you are the Christ, then his chosen one. Uh, but interestingly though, if you are the Christ, the son of God, his chosen one, the thing is, how does Jesus actually want to be? I mean, as, as the Christ, the chosen one, how will Jesus choose to save his people? But by dying and not saving himself. It is precisely through this sacrifice that he is showing himself to be the Christ, the chosen one. Um, let's see, my handout, we, I think we covered that. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. It's not that they were actually, this wasn't a sympathetic gesture of like, hey, let's give him some of this nasty wine. So it was, they would have had sour wine there at the foot of the cross, according to the commentaries, to actually quench their own thirst, the, the soldiers. Well, but so after they finished the work of the day of getting Jesus up there, and they're kind of toasting each other to a job well done, and they're pretending to like make a toast to King Jesus. Hey, Jesus! King Jesus, here's to you. So they're mocking. It's a gesture of mocking him. And they wouldn't have even known. So we're familiar with the whole narrative, but these guys wouldn't have known the whole backstory of everything leading up to this moment. They just clocked, clocked in that morning. They're handed this guy. They're supposed to, oh, what's he here? What's this guy on trial for? Or what, what, what are we executing him for? Oh, he says he's the king of the Jews. I, I hate the Jews, he would say. Right? This, this like, in this case, actual this despising of an entire race from the Romans to the, to the Jewish nation. So in that way, Jesus being crucified is, is a representative of all the Jews who are being rejected and hated by the Romans. Verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, as your sign says, then save yourself. There's also an inscription over him, as the commentaries said, that that would have been carried in front of the cross. This is the king of the Jews. And that's where I got that picture there in your handout, that I-N-R-I. That's from the, from the uh, Latin, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And it would have been in three different languages, Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. Again, not because they wanted to make sure to get it titled properly, but who is that sign for? What's the purpose of the crucifixion? To deter, to deter the same crime in the future. So they want to make sure that everybody who's passing by and the, and the predominant languages of the area are represented so that when they're walking past, they can say, okay, I don't want to do what that guy did. I don't want to do what that guy did. So they want to be able to, 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 to read in their language. Now, this is where it gets fun. Uh, we, we find ourselves on the cross there with Jesus. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. If you are the Christ, think about today's sermon in, in the context of transfiguration. If you are the Christ, you will have all this 
power and glory and strength that will be able to overcome suffering and destroy the bad guys and be a power savior. So if you are the Christ, do it. It's the same thinking of Peter in Matthew 16. Uh, it, it was also in Mark is it 8, just before our reading from, from today's gospel. So this idea of desiring Jesus only according to power and refusing a Jesus who comes in weakness. We obviously would all, reckon, we all recognize that Jesus, we want Jesus on the cross, but in our sinful flesh, we also, we also feel the pull of desiring Jesus according to glory. The vending machine Jesus, it never ceases to amaze me. Every year I run into another like three or four conversations with, with uh, unbelievers, maybe former Christians or, or just, just uh, ardent atheists who will talk about if, if there is a God, then why is there suffering? That is the, like the top argument for why there can be no God. Because if there's a God, he would be acting according to power and strength, and he would be able to undo suffering in the world. And the fact that he doesn't undo suffering in the world means, therefore, that there's no, there's no God, or there's no Jesus, or this whole idea of Jesus as God is false. You see? And in our flesh, when we go through our individual times of suffering, the devil's going to bring the same argument. And it's quite convincing because it, it's not fun to suffer. In fact, that's why it's called by Jesus himself that we'll take up our cross and follow him. Our, our suffering is referred to as crosses. Um, and so in those moments of the cross, we're like, oh man, why is, why is Jesus, why is God allowing this? Have you ever asked that prayer of God? By the way, you can because the psalmists do it all the time. So to pray to God, why? Why are you doing this thing? That's a fair, and, and please, please stop the suffering. We pray that even in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Deliver us from evil. We're, we're, we're joining our lips to this prayer that we don't want the, the suffering. But when we do suffer, that does, it's not evidence that God doesn't love us and it's not evidence that there is no God. It's actually evidence that we need a savior. When we suffer, it's ongoing reminder of that we needed somebody to come into this world and save us. But our first reaction is when suffering comes, Jesus, wait, 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 are you busy? What, did you, do you not care? Do you not love me? Right? So we want to push against that. And that's the same mindset that Peter had. And that's our, our I think, our given uh, immediate response to, to, to demand a Jesus, a God who operates toward us on our terms. I prayed this and that. I did this prayer. I tried to live my life well, and therefore God should be blessing me in such a way. And if he doesn't, then I'm gonna stop believing in him. Or if bad things are happening in your life, and you say, I must have done something to deserve this. God is finally punishing me for whatever, whatever former sin I once did or something, Right? So we, he, he's pushing us away. Don't look at your life for evidence of God's love. You can look at your life all you want for evidence of your need for a savior, but you're not gonna look to your life for evidence of God's love. God's love for us is known for sure on the cross. So again, that's John, we talked about this before, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way that he gave his son. So don't look at your life for evidence of God's love or his presence with you. Look at your life for evidence of your need for a savior. Okay, if you remember nothing else from today, that's, I think that's always helpful because that's, we, all, we all face suffering in, in various ways um, in, during this life, but that, that's when, this, that's when this, the real trial with our faith begins. 
where the, the devil comes and even our own, our own sinful flesh saying, how could, how could a loving God be allowing this? Don't look there. You, you see it, it's evidence of your sin. I need a savior. So there's one guy on the cross with that. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Because I want, if you're, if you're the Christ, obviously you'll be acting according to power. Ironically though, save yourself and us. What's Jesus doing on the cross? He's saving them. He's actually doing the thing that this guy's asking him to do, but he just does it. He's expecting it according to power and strength, not by the cross. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? You know who else is under the same sentence of condemnation? You and me. So the fact is we have to suffer death in this world because of the existence of sin and our own, our own like uh, sinfulness, right? So we know that we're all guilty of the same, of that we're, we're heading in that same direction. So we're, everybody in all of humanity is sum, summed up in those two guys. You're either the one looking to Jesus or you're fleeing away, turning away from Jesus or, and wanting, demanding that Jesus act toward you in, on your own terms. So the one who looks to Jesus, he said, we indeed are, are suffering justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he looks over at Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, which is our same prayer in our last moments of life. Whenever, whenever we, the diagnosis uh, or whatever, the, whether it's a lingering death or, or, uh, or a quick death, whatever it is, we're praying the same prayer. Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is a prayer of faith from the thief on the cross because he notices he acknowledges the kingdom. So when you come in your kingdom, so you are the king because you have a kingdom. And when you go there, I want to be there with you. And you have the power to accomplish it because you are God. So it's a, it's a prayer of faith from that, from that thief on the cross. And we talked about before what it means for him to remember. So it's not like, like when God's up in heaven, he's like, oh yeah, there's that guy on the cross. I got to do something. For, remember, in the Greek mindset and from the Hebrew as well, this concept of remembrance, like do, as often as you do this in remembrance of me and the Lord's prayer, the same idea from when God's people are in slavery in Egypt and, and they're, they're praying to God for help. And then it, the, the, the text says, and God remembered his people. Like he had forgotten, like he had other people elsewhere that he was busy with. No, so when God remembers, it's simply him acting toward them in mercy. So for God to remember us, for him to remember Israel, for him to remember the thief on the cross is to act toward him in mercy, which is, which is ultimately what he does. He's given this prayer in faith. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, the same prayer that, that we also make. Um, by the way, what a, can you imagine? Like for us, we'll die in this hope of eternal life. Um, and depending on how it goes, like you're, you're staring at the, the cross on your wall or something, clinging to uh, the, the hope of the resurrection in the midst of your death. But when you're actually dying and, you're, and you have faith in Jesus and you're looking at him in the eyes as you die, what better way to go, right? I mean, obviously a terrible way to go, but I mean, ultimately to be going through this and have Jesus like looking at, looking at you. So that would, that Jesus ultimately, while we don't have it in the same way, he wants us to be, he wants to be known for us in the same way. When he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So we're not, while we're not looking at him in the same way, he does want to be known with the same sense of presence 
with us when we suffer, when we go through the dark times and the trying times, and to know that he has overcome. We have something that the thief on the cross did not have yet, as we actually know that he's risen from the dead. So we have the hope of the resurrection, where this guy is still kind of working it, out, working it all out. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Now, uh, this, this, think about what this does for our theology of heaven. So a person dies, the thief on the cross dies, and then where does he go? His body's still hanging on the cross. So we mark death as this separation of body and soul, right? The body goes in the ground, soul goes to be with Jesus, right? And then the last day is the resurrection of those things, the rejoining of body and soul back together. But we are, we're given the certainty that when we die, we are with Jesus. So to, 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 to be with Jesus is ultimately paradise. So he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Wherever Jesus is, it is, it is paradise. And in fact, like uh, we sing in that hymn, Lord, thee I love with all my heart. If heaven itself were void and bare, if thou, Lord, were not with me, that is, if we got to heaven and Jesus wasn't there, we wouldn't want to be there. It's only heaven because Jesus is there. So paradise is wherever Jesus is. So in a way, this thief on the cross is already in paradise, but he's talking about this heavenly picture. Paradise is also the translation of the Garden of Eden from the Old Testament. Uh, Today, that is, you're not gonna, notice he doesn't have to go into a um, semi-purgatory type space and burn off any sins, but he goes straight to heaven. Right? So, I mean, the whole concept of purgatory is one. We can, we can talk about that at length. We're running out of time. But um, the concept of purgatory going to this, Jesus has died for your... Here's the, here's the teaching. I'm over-summarizing it, but here's the teaching of purgatory. Jesus has died for your sins to keep you out of hell, but you can't get into heaven because you're still kind of icky. You're covered in dirty and you're, you're covered in sin. So he's gotten you out of hell but you, still, you don't get into heaven. So you're in this middle zone until you are purified. And how do you purify things? Fire. So this concept of being purified by fire for this, this unknown length of time in purgatory until you're finally made pure enough to enter into heaven. But that's, that's not in the Bible. That's our, our big push in classic Luther responses, that's not in the Bible. And how long, so then you've made this thing up and how long am I supposed to suffer there? And by the way, when Jesus says it is finished, I thought he meant it is finished. And when he said today you'll be with me in paradise, I thought he said today. So why are you adding, it's, you're, you're, you're adding an entire system to salvation that Jesus didn't even talk about? See? I know I'm oversimplifying the complexities of purgatory, but I mean, I think you flee to the mouth of Jesus in his dying words, and uh, we, we know that there's not additional things for us to do because he's, he's paid it in full already. Today will be with me in paradise, uh, and then we get into the, the actual death of Jesus and the, and the hours of darkness in verse 44, um, when he is forsaken by God. So the sky goes dark. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So sixth hour is noon and the ninth hour is, is three o'clock. So arguably the hottest, brightest part of the day, it's now completely dark because 
Well, you, there's, there's different scientific rationales for how, how God pulled this off or what he worked through to accomplish it. But ultimately, the sun was only there because God allowed it. In fact, you know what God created before he created the sun? Light. Let there be light. And then later he comes back and creates the sun. So he's able to say, hey, we're going to shut this whole thing off. And so a darkness covers the land. And during this time, we don't have it in Luke, but Jesus famously says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Jesus ultimately suffering the, the eternal pains of hell on the cross for these three hours on our behalf. It's not, it's not just that he was suffering. It's not my, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. But notice it says, why? One of my pastor buddies uh, has the speculation that the reason why it says this is because if Jesus is on the cross and he's going through this tremendous suffering, but he knows that he's doing it for us. Just like if we were to suffer on behalf of our family, all of a sudden it makes it, like, it, makes it more bearable. Like any of you dads walk into your daughter when she's like throwing up with some tummy bug and you say, if I could take this from you, I would. And like, even though you'd be suffering with whatever the disease is, you're able to say, it's like, it gives you a little bit of joy because you know you're doing it for her. So if Jesus is up there, if he's on the cross and he knows he's doing this for us, it would actually give him a little bit of joy and a little bit of hope and a little bit of peace. And hell does not have hope, joy, and peace. So he's, for him, in order for him to suffer hell on the cross, he actually has to be shielded from the reason why he's even doing it. Hence, why have you forsaken me? Like, how does he not know? He's even been talking about it. He pro he's prophesied, he's talked about it. Well, in this moment, for these three hours, he's even shielded from that comfort to, so that he could suffer the, the full depths of hell. That's, that's speculation as to why the why there, but I think it's pretty convincing. But at the, at the very least, we do, we do know that he's suffering the wrath of God because that's ultimately the thing that he, that's the big suffering that he does on the cross. On the handout, I mentioned the, three, the threefold sufferings of Jesus. He suffers the shame of being rejected by his friends, spit upon, stripped naked, and so forth. Uh, he suffers the, the physical pain of the crucifixion, the scourging. But lastly, and, and most greatly, he suffers the wrath of God. The being forsaken by God is ultimately hell. That's the thing that distinguishes his suffering from everybody else who is crucified, and why his suffering actually wins for us eternal life and salvation. Uh, I think we're, we're at uh, basically a time. Any uh, questions or comments there about the forsakenness and this threefold suffering of Jesus? And then we, the, then the, the curtain of the temple is torn in two, symbolizing no longer a separation between God and his people, which is why that curtain was there in the temple. So now he's going to be with us and among us, with us always. And then he calls out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which is what death is, the separation of body and souls, uh, soul, and he breathes his last. Um, but now we're back to Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He lays, so notice he says, I commit my, I commit my spirit. Because remember, no one's making him die. He's had plenty of chances to get out of it. He could snap his fingers and end this thing whenever he wanted to, but he's laying down his life on his own accord. I commit my, I'm still in charge here. I commit my spirit. But committing a spirit uh, is, is, is a helpful picture because notice like when you commit your, uh, when you hand your, your, when your, when your kid hands you an ice cream cone because they want to jump on the merry-go-round, they expect it back. Now, my kids have learned to not expect the ice cream to come back at that point. But generally, they want, hey, can you hold this for me? 
right? I want it back. And that's the idea here is I, I, commit, I commit to you my spirit, but we know he's going to get it. He's going to get it back. He's going to get it back soon on Easter Sunday. And that'll be, uh, we'll, we'll still look, uh, look at his uh, death and burial more next week. No questions or comments? Um, yes, yes, ma'am. Yeah, no. Paradise, yeah, so as I mentioned, paradise is, the, uh, is this picture of uh, the Garden of Eden. That's the, at least that's the word, this perfection. And being in, being in the presence of Jesus is paradise. Good. I mean, I, I'm sure um, if, you, if you want to grab a chair and help put, put something away, that would, that would be appreciated. Thanks to our fellowship committee for, for all their work and all their stuff today. The Lord be with you.